Hello and welcome to Sprogcast, a radio show all about pregnancy, birth and early parenting, hosted by Karen Hall and Mark Harris and supported by Pinter and Martin. This is Sprogcast. In this episode, we're chatting all about the latest news. There's so much interesting stuff going on right now. And we're interviewing author Alice Allen about her novel, Open My Eyes That I May See Marvellous Things. Um, we're speaking to our roving reporter, Sophie Martin, at Doola UK. Um, we are hoping to have an interview with Claire, Mark Filmian. Harbottle. Who is? An independent midwife working in the Leeds area. Uh, wants to clarify some things about in, uh, independent midwives contracts and bank contracts with hospitals that are being supportive. So we haven't got that at the time of recording, but we're hoping to slot it in. At the end of the episode, we will have Alice Allen reading her um, my favourite chapter of, the, of her book. Um, but before all that, I'm Karen Hall and this is Mark Harris. Hi, Karen. What, the whole chapter, Karen? It's only three pages. Oh, that's all right. <laughs> Don't sound so dismayed. <laughs> <laughs> I, just, I just thought we were going to have a long chapter, like a preview for audiobook or something. This this is the episode of Sprogcast in which we discover how little time Mark has for fiction. <laughs> <laughs> that's not completely true. I, I, Anton Wilson has written some amazing fiction. I love that. and Not so keen on fiction generally okay then well we'll we'll discuss your dislike of fiction later have you got any news what what's going on with you busy 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 with all things birthing for blokes pretty busy and and of course writing second book still writing well it's mad because my uh son joseph had a baby on on the 31st of march So I had an outline for the book, Men, Love and Fatherhood. You know, you do an outline, all the things you think based on experience that men would want to know. And suddenly I've got my son ringing me every other day (laughs) with suddenly he's interested in what I do for a living, Karen. (laughs) In fact, the other night he was asking me about breastfeeding and and, uh, I could hear him leafing through my book. (laughs) That's brilliant. Um, and and my son, who has laughed and been derisory about baby wearing, is suddenly looking at slings. Aww. It's bizarre. It's great for the book because suddenly I'm answering very real world questions that are coming up for him. It's, it's a wonderful period of time in my life. <laughs> for so many reasons. What have you been about? Well, it's we've had the two weeks of Easter holidays, which just makes everything pile up a bit. So I'm... I don't even have time this week to look at my inbox, which is overflowing. And yeah. I've been away for the long weekend um, walking the Thames Path with Pete, so didn't look at any electronic stuff for three days, which is fantastic. It's been so nice to be out in the open air for three days, just walking, and just with Pete, and nobody needing me for anything. Or if they did, I didn't know about it, so I didn't care. Where was where was the child then? The child was um, with his grandmother. Oh, that's all right. Just checking. No, I didn't leave him behind. But we are going to take him with us for our next um, walking because we're walking the whole Thames path. And he did the very first two miles from the source where there was no water at all. And then he's done about a mile at Letchlade just to see the statue of Old Father Thames. And then the next bit we've got to do is um, Oxford onwards. So he's going to come and do those six miles with us, which is a long walk for him. How long is the Thames path? 189 miles 
Wow. And we've walked 55 so far. Wow. Is this a kind of a bucket list thing? Yeah, it is a bit. It's just something we wanted to do. That's lovely. So we should um, return to the subject matter in hand. Let's do it. So Sprogcast is brought to you by our sponsor, Pinter and Martin, an independent publishing company specialising in pregnancy, birth and parenting, psychology, nutrition and yoga at pinterandmartin.com. And um, this episode coming out on the 25th of April, two days before our next Sprogcast live event on the 27th at Ephra Space. So if you go on the Facebook page, facebook.com Sprogcast, um, if you've listened to this just as it comes out, you still have time to book. Tickets are only £10. We've got Dennis Walsh, Vanessa Olleranshaw and Becky Reed, and me and Mark. So come and say hi it's going to be great and there's there's a theme karen yes it's autonomy and decision making in parenthood i think <laughs> <laughs> you're the producer <laughs> oh god well, i've got my head in this at the moment oh yeah cool well i'm looking forward to it i i know dennis is 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 well into his current research project and there'll be lots of opportunity to talk about that that's about standalone alongside midwifery units contrasting the high performing ones with uh, the ones that aren't performing so well and teasing out areas of best practice brilliant and what i'm hoping is that our three speakers will have a lot to say to each other um and that our audience will have some interesting questions as they did last time and it's just all going to be super so seven o'clock 27th of april effra space come and see us yeah come and see us now we've got a little bit of recording um which a friend of mine sophie martin one of those great friends i've never met um did for us at the doula uk conference would you like to listen to that yes let's do that right okay. now So I'm Sorry. Sophie and I'm here at uh, Dealer UK Conference 2017 in Manchester. I'm standing outside with the lovely Andy Sims, who's a consultant obstetrician in Nottingham. I am. <laughs> and the lovely dealer, uh, Lisa Ramsey, who's Dealer UK Dealer of the Year 2017, which is really exciting. <laughs> and I just wanted to ask you first, uh, Andy, first, um, what's the like thing that you've heard today that's really re-inspired your love of all things birth and all things women? <laughs> wow, gosh, wow. <laughs> just wow. a quick thing. It doesn't have to Learned, so, 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 no, no, I've learned from, from each of the talks actually. So, I was, I think, Ina May Gaskin is a very inspiring uh, speaker, yeah. and so I was engaged, very engaged in hearing her story. Um, I thought that the next talk by one of your doula colleagues, Lindsay, Lindsay mm-hmm. was fantastic because it talked about communication, it talked about identifying different people and yeah. that we're not all one and in the same boat it's so I took um it's good stuff from that and and then I thought the physiology lecture on oxytocin Amazing. we don't teach it no. we don't teach wow. it and we should so I thought that was great they're the morning things but yeah, yeah <laughs> and then we had inspiring. lunch <laughs> and then we had lunch and I didn't fall asleep afterwards I thought the poetry was great so, yeah, yeah we really enjoyed the poetry and what about you Lisa what have you really taken away from today that fills you with joy and excitement I think seeing a room full of people men and women who are committed to women having positive birth experiences it just 
fills me with joy. Wonderful. Um, and I'd like it to be on TV so every woman, whether she's pregnant or not yet pregnant or not even considering having a family, knows that when she gets to that point, there are people who will come alongside her and say, I'm in it with you. Yeah, cool. And we know all birth professionals have something in common. They all love tea and cake. So which cake did you have today, Lisa? Did oh. you have four slices or five? <laughs> I had the vegan chia pudding. Oh, that's wonderful. I think it tasted delicious. What about you, And I Andy? had the apple grumble. I didn't have a cake. <laughs> that's wonderful. We've all had a great day today, haven't Fantastic. we? And we've very really enjoyed good. being hosted Brilliant. by Julie UK. So Fantastic. Thanks very much yeah. for joining me. Cheers, no guys. Problem. Thank you. Thanks for that, Sophie. And Sophie went to do the UK conference with um, another friend of mine who I have met a number of times, Lisa Ramsey, who was um, Doula UK Doula of the Year. Congratulations, Lisa. What a star. She couldn't deserve it more. Yeah, she's awesome. Yes. Yeah. Really excited about in every that. way. Yeah. Really I, I was a bit disappointed I couldn't get to the, to the conference. I've never heard Ina May Gaskin speak live. And, and she's certainly one of those one of my midwifery heroes oh absolutely inspirational that would have been and i know that everyone who went enjoyed it right we've got loads of news articles what's your top of mind thing to talk about karen well we've we wanted to mention the save the midwife demo didn't we on the yeah. 5th of may for international day of the midwife i, I was invited to, to go and speak at this but um sadly i'm already with dennis at a university in nottingham and it's two days before my wedding uh, Karen, so lots to do. A wedding, you say? I'm getting married, yeah, on the seventh, seventh of May. Very exciting, and of course, as as the man involved, I've got lots of flowers to arrange and <laughs> so much responsibility and for and, you. and bunting to to coordinate. Right. Uh, with the bridesmaids, you know. So while you're coordinating bunting, people are organising and demonstrating to save the midwife. What's that about? Well, I, I think the heart of this demo, it's going to be outside the headquarters of the NMC. Uh, I, I think that's the address there. Uh, the heart is, is is protesting against changes to midwifery regulation, I mm. think. You know, it's, it's the removal of the role of supervisor from statute, uh, which is w- one of the issues that, that midwives are very, very concerned about. So that layer of uh, protection and support between the NMC and the midwife on the ground has now been removed. I mean, that's so that's an important change that will affect midwives. Uh, th- there used to be a, a statutory requirement for the NMC to have a midwifery committee that's been removed. One of the concerns is the loss of that distinctive representation uh, at the NMC, which was a statutory requirement. Uh, also, of course, the intention to practice requirement for midwives has gone. Right. Every year until this year, we had to fill in a yearly intention to practice form that had to be signed by our supervisor of midwives. The supervisor of midwives role doesn't just include supporting uh, midwives. It, it also includes supporting women. You know, women who are seeking to make choices that are outside the guidelines, maybe of an institution, uh, would have always had a supervisor of midwives to refer to. Yeah. And uh, that statutory requirement is now gone, which means uh, any future provision 
uh, will be provided by the institution itself. Uh, they won't have a legal requirement to provide it. Right. And of course, when you when you add to that uh, one of our other news stories, I think Jeremy Hunt is initiating an investigation into baby deaths. Yeah, this is at Shrewsbury and Telford Hospital Trust. Um, I've got an article on um, our Facebook from The Guardian, which was last week, um, and it was an investigation into the deaths of a number of babies at this Midlands Trust after seven of them were judged to have been avoidable. And it seemed from listening to the news stories, which I heard quite a lot of, that um, over time the Trust kept saying we will learn the lessons and the same events kept occurring. Yeah, I, and, and the lessons are in the context of fetal monitoring, as best as I can tell. I mean, we we never know all the facts, do we? No, we don't. And, we, we... and certainly when we're reading off of a newspaper article, I, I mean, my initial uh, inclination is to be suspicious mm-hmm. of, of the headline. But, but reading a little bit more and listening to the news stories, it, it seems that the concerns are around CTG monitoring and interpretation. Yes, so I was hoping you would explain this to me because my understanding was that um, monitoring is is another intervention that ideally is kept to a minimum, but obviously where it's necessary, it's necessary. So what is it that went wrong with the monitoring? Well, who who knows for sure, but but if we were going to make a distinction, uh, continuous fetal monitoring is not indicated for every woman. You know, if a woman comes into a, uh, the so-called category of low risk, a continuous fetal monitoring is not indicated by the NICE guidelines. If she has any kind of risk factor, and those risk factors are very wide and broad, so a lot, a lot of women, you know, come into that category, continuous fetal monitoring will be indicated. Now, the challenge with continuous fetal monitoring is that if you look at the evidence for it, it, it the evidence isn't strong that, it, it, that as a practice it's particularly preventative of serious outcomes you know you get a lot of false positive readings from uh, CTGs continuous uh, tocograph monitoring right and what would be the risk of false positives things things like you're seeing something on the CTG that is uh, raising your awareness that there might be a problem, but when the baby's born, there is no apparent evidence of there being a problem. You see, a lot of continuous fetal monitoring happens with a transabdominal transducer, so that means it's kind of an ultrasound through through the woman's abdomen, mm. and the potential for picking up a reading of a woman's fast heart rate rather than the baby's heart rate is is always present right you know i i can't tell you the amount of times quite a few times when i've been at the birth of a baby um the baby's been born and the ctg monitor is still on and still recording a heart rate that that could have been the baby's but the baby isn't in there anymore right so those kind of false positive readings with transabdominal transducers are always a potential. There were comments in the article about fetal heart rates not recorded and stuff like that, which is a problem when it comes to record keeping. But I think you have to see all of these incidents in the context of the environment that midwives are working in. Now, I'm not excusing poor practice by 
you know, any stretch. So that that was going to be my next question. What good practice would prevent these kind of problems? I think midwives who are working uh, intrapartumly, being up to date on the current evidence around reading uh, CTG traces and stuff like that is, is really crucial. Um, in the trusts that I've worked at, certainly about eight years ago, five, well, less than that, uh, we would have a fresh eyes uh, system whereby if you've been in a room uh, looking, you know, looking after a woman, being being involved with the uh, the CTG trace for an hour, you would get a colleague to come in and have a look at the trace with you so that you were having a second opinion about the trace mm -hmm. and you would record that. I think it was called fresh eyes and I'm sure that's going on nationwide. Those those things are all important for sure. But I, th I think we we have to see it in the context that midwives are working in. And, and we know there aren't enough midwives out there for the kind of workload that they're having to deal with. Yeah, well, and that, that's an ongoing issue, isn't it? And it's hard. It's hard not to have a conspiratorial mindset. You know, it, it, it's hard. We've got the dismantling of uh, midwifery regulation. You know, raising the concerns, it's important to do that. But what we've seen is what, to many midwives, feels like a complete overhaul of a system that, yes, needed overhaul, but didn't need complete decimation. Yeah. And I see where your conspiracy theory may arise. Well, yes. You know, you, you, you think that there is a, a concerted effort to uh, bring midwives under control. You know, along with that, you've got the, the NMC and the ongoing issue with independent midwives that hopefully Claire will be talking about, where the option for a midwife to function totally independently is being stripped away from uh, individual midwives by their, their governing body. Mm. And, and that's a concern. And, yes. and, and for me, has implications not just for this generation of midwives and women's, but for the future development of midwifery as a whole. It's great to have Claire Harbottle uh, with us today. Claire, could you just take a, a little while to introduce yourself and say a little bit about what, what you currently do? Uh, yeah, I'm a registered midwife. I work independently. Um, I live in Leeds in Yorkshire. Um, I work as part of a small collective called the Yorkshire Stock. So there's myself and um, two other midwives currently on the register and one who's just come off. Um, but then there's another uh, four or five independent midwives in Yorkshire. You're a collective? Um, the collective of the Yorkshire Stocks, yes, that's a, that's a, you know, we are a collective of midwives, but then there's the wider sort of Yorkshire IMs who are uh, nine in number, eight in number, sorry, now, and we all network, we back each other, we provide support to each other, um, so yeah, we've got quite a lot of connections with them. That's quite, a, I don't know what the collective noun is for IMs. Um, coven? Gaggle, coven. <laughs> I, I, <laughs> Someone said to me once that tr trying to get IMs together is like herding cats. Oh, no, we're very good at it. <laughs> See, we have, we have regular um, meetings, which are not just for IMs, but they're, they're um, it's called nymphs. So we meet regionally, we share food um, and we provide support to each other and information to each other. But we also include midwives who are not um, working independently, but who practice holistically. Right. And based on collaboration. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. 
Yeah, I don't think that person was being rude. I think they were reflecting um, the the fact that independent midwives do tend to be kind of free thinkers. You know that. No, you just need to offer them food, and then they'll come. <laughs> okay. How long have you been a midwife, Claire? Oh, not that long. I graduated in 2014, having had a career in photography and um, as a freelance artist. Uh, my personal practice was um, revolving around birth. So I was photographing births, filming births. Um, I wrote my master's dissertation on the history of midwifery and the representation of the pregnant and birthing body. So, yeah, I've had a, a long term interest in, in um, all things midwifery related. I decided to retrain in 2011. You went independent as a midwife fairly early on. Yeah, I, I had contacted Chris Warren at the Yorkshire Stocks as a student and said, could I come out with them um, for my, we didn't really have an elective on the course that I was at, but we were encouraged to go and spend some time elsewhere. So I spent, um, um, it was supposed to be a week or two weeks, I think, right at the back end of my third year, just before we finished. And I just never went away. Um, so I became a student member of the Yorkshire Stocks and then a qualified member of the Yorkshire Stocks. I did also work for the NHS. I worked part time for seven months when I qualified. Cool. So I, I got in contact with you, Claire, because I felt there was confusion out there about whether women actually had the the ability to engage an independent midwife. People were saying, no, nowhere in the country can people have an independent midwife. And the things I was seeing you post on Facebook uh, led me to believe that something different was happening in Yorkshire. C can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, in Yorkshire, the whole, all of the independent midwives who practice, uh, not just the collective that I'm with, but all of us, have been able to negotiate with Airedale Trust, a arrangement whereby we're able to care for our own clients in labour in, in the home um, using Airedale's CNST indemnity arrangement. So we're covered. And while that extends just to the sort of Yorkshire IMs, there's a similar arrangement um, in Chelsea and Westminster in, in London. As far as I'm aware, that's, they're the only two. But this is a model that could be rolled out across the country. The arrangement is that we work on Airedale's bank. They generate us a shift when we have a client in labour. We go out to that client and then the shift is terminated when the client's delivered and we're leaving. So we're, we're able to, to practice. It's really good for Airedale as well because there's benefits for them. Right. I was going to ask about that. How I, I can see how that benefits you, but but what what are the benefits to Airedale then? We're we're actually working together on continuity and working on the better births and um, recommendations. So they're facilitating our ongoing care for our clients, but we're also able to import into their normalcy focus at the moment. They've got a really big normalcy focus, and we're able to import into that. We're having training with them, which means that we're doing their mandatory training, but actually. We're feeding into it quite a lot. Things that we're sort of pointing up or, or, or saying, you know, have you thought about this differently? So that's really good. Uh, they're also able then to call us to work um, for them on the bank. And the moment, some of us are quite happy to do that across all um, aspects of the trust. So whether that's the um, antenatal postnatal ward, whether that's the um, delivery suite. Um, but actually, we're all happy to work on their bank as home birth midwives. So we're providing second um, midwife cover for their core um, home birth team. Oh, that's fantastic. So, I mean, they're taking the better birth report very seriously, it sounds. Yeah. And we actually see this as a, a model that could be um, used. It could be rolled out as a model of good practice because 
things, one of the things that we've got is a lot of home birth experience. So we can feed in our home birth experience into their service, uh, back their service when it's when it's stretched. Um, and it just means that it works really, really well for everybody. Yeah. And you, uh, the midwives among you that, that would benefit from extra money have the opportunity to earn extra money through through working on their bank. Yeah, absolutely. Can I ask can I ask a details question? You know, you know, when you're servicing or giving service to your own clients, they, they open a, a bank shift for the period of time that you're working with your own clients. Yeah. They're not paying you for that time, surely. They are. Yes. And we therefore can't charge our client for that time. So we can charge our clients for antenatal and postnatal care, for travel and for on call, but not actually for that, um, the, 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 the birthing itself. Well, that sounds like a good compromise, given the circumstances. Yes, it's a it's a great compromise given the circumstances. And actually, there's been unexpected um, beneficial consequences of this. So, for example, the training that we've done um, with Airedale. I mean, we've always worked alongside the NHS. So, so you know, sometimes we transfer in. We often have women who are seeing consultants and some of our, some of our clients will have care with us and the NHS. So we've always had quite a collaborative approach to our NHS colleagues. But this has brought us even closer into focus. And there's, there's things that, that we possibly didn't fully grasp, like, like the importance of key performance indicators. You know, they're driven by the, the need to, to have these. And that's fine. We can, we can work with those. Um, but also the training. So we've worked We've we've done training with them that's actually, I think, opened their eyes to how we practice and opened our eyes to some of the restrictions they're possibly working under. It's worked really, really well. It's been a, a great sort of two-way um, process so far. Yeah. I, I, one of the things I notice in my own experience is the more understanding I have about uh, other people that I'm working with, it, it, it sounds a bit cheesy, but it, it, it generates com compassion or... or I don't know. It generates sort of like an understanding for, for the confines that they're working in, which uh, helps the relationship often. Yeah. One of one of the things that I think we've always been um, NHS um, staff have sometimes been concerned about is that we make decisions on behalf of our clients and never make decisions on the behalf of our clients. So we've had really interesting um, discussions with Airedale about language. Um, one of the things that they they asked um, very early on when we were negotiating this is if they could have a risk assessment conversation with our clients in advance of, of um, them birthing to make sure that, you know, that they understood their risks. And we said, uh, hmm, yes, but can we not call it a risk assessment because our clients won't particularly be receptive to that? What are you actually wanting to achieve? And they went just to make sure that they understand what's, you know, that they've had the information and they've made their own decisions. And, and we're like, yeah, absolutely. That's how we practice. So what we did was we just said, can you change the language a little bit? Can you maybe call it an informed consent conversation? Mm. And that might sound like we were being a little bit pedantic, but an informed consent conversation throws the power back into the woman's hands. I am making my own decisions. Somebody else doing a risk assessment takes that power away from them because it's it's and it's it's subtle, but it's really, really important. And actually, it's working really well, because I think maybe sometimes we're looking at our own practice and thinking, oh, OK, fine. Maybe we need to be looking at this more carefully. But so are they. So it's been a really useful, um, a really useful exercise just on its own merits. 
Yeah. The point you make about the power of language cannot be underestimated. You can see this model maybe being a way forward for other IMs in other places in the country. We'd love for that to be happening because at the moment, if you live in Yorkshire, you can book an IM. You can have an IM look after you antenatally, postnatally and during your birth. And to be honest, with continuity of carer, that's what most people book an, an independent midwife for. They want to know the person who's going to be with them when they have their baby and they want to know them in advance. And 88% of women in the birth in the NHS have never met the midwife who looks after them in labour, before labour. And you know, I imagine 100% of independent midwifery clients have, you know, they know us. And that's why they book. It seems to me there's been some really courageous leadership going on up there. Absolutely. Yeah, I really think there has. But I think there was also um, a recognition of the fact that better births is about um, um, continuity of carer. And with the best will in the world, there are areas of the NHS that just aren't able to, to provide that. So um, I think this has been a real engagement with, with the better births. Yeah. yeah. Given that this is, is working really well, I, I'm assuming uh, that, that what you, you really want is this whole NMC thing to be sorted out, right? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we don't think that the NMC's decision was made um, um, reasonably. Um, so we are challenging that in law. And there's always, if you have an employer, even when your employer is as supportive as Airedale are being, there's always the issue of, am I at a birth? Am I a truly autonomous practitioner? Uh, with my indemnity scheme with, with Lucina, yes, absolutely, I always was. I would like to be able to um, use the Lucina scheme, which is absolutely, um, as far as I'm concerned, fit for purpose. Um, and I'd like to be able to use that again. So I'm hoping that the, the outcome of the judicial review will be favourable to us. We at Spodcast kind of support that. It's more than just whether or not 80 odd um, independent midwives can continue to practice. We do a heck of a lot of um, interaction with the NHS generally. We do a lot of advocacy work. We are mostly involved politically in midwifery campaigns. Um, so, you know, there's the campaign for better midwifery regulation, which predates this decision by the um, NMC. And, you know, this was around concerns about being regulated by an organisation that's so predominated by nurses. Independent midwives are often pushing the, you know, the boundaries, pushing the way forward politically and protecting midwives' interest. So to lose us isn't just to lose 80 home birth midwives scattered across the country. It's to lose a, um, a, a politically motivated. Um, and we've got a platform to be able to do that because we work outside of the NHS. We work outside of that particular system. Well, we've we've certainly got the uh, 5th of May event posted up already and we'll post every oh. everything uh, else that you want posted will get posted. If people want to get in contact with you to ask questions or, uh, you know, see what you're doing, what what's the mm -hmm. best way? If they want to get involved with the Campaign for Better Midwifery Regulation, that's got a Facebook um, um, page. There's the Association of Radical Midwives who are also mobilising this. If they want to get in touch with me personally, um, I'm ClaireHarbottle at gmail.com. Brilliant. Thanks for taking the time today, Claire. No worries. Nice to talk to you. And you. Bye. Well, that was good to hear from Claire. You posted a link about medics using video to help the parents of neonatal babies. Yeah, what I thought it was that? a. I, I, it, it, it's a way of uh, hospital staff within a neonatal unit being able to give information to parents that, for whatever reason, can't be inside the hospital. 
and it's just the the, sh- the short video of of the baby being sent to parents. Okay, so it's just to help them keep a connection with their baby who's in special care. Yeah. That's quite nice. Just reading um, the news article, this is from the BBC and it's on the Facebook page. It sounds like something that the, the staff themselves are all very enthusiastic about. Yeah, I, I, I get a sense that, that the intervention makes a big difference to the families involved, but doesn't take much time for the midwife or neonatal nurse to do. It's just so a little thing, isn't it? For me, I always come back to that idea of, of kindness, you know, little expressions of kindness um, that make such a, a difference. When I'm on the end of them, do you know? Yeah. Do you know when you get someone just taking a little bit more time, being a little bit more focused on, on how I'm feeling? Those things make a massive difference. It'd be interesting to have an actual study showing how this affects kind of, you know, the baby's outcome and bonding yeah. and things like that yeah for I mean, sure i'd hope that it didn't take the place of actually visiting and doing skin to skin and no i get that yeah i mean they do make the point uh, in the article that it's it's used when parents for whatever reason are unable yeah. to be present um in the neonatal unit and um it's it's a little thing that, that may well be uh, delivering a, a a big benefit for the parents yeah Oh, that's nice. I like that. Yeah. The the last thing I've got on the news articles is just I wanted to comment on related to to the. Are you snorting? Well, I I knew I I, I knew you would be um. Uh, what what's jumping the word? on this? Yes, I knew. Yeah. I knew, and I, I understand. Do you why. mind? Not at all. I think it's important. Yeah. Well, th- this is um, related to our previous episode when we spoke to Abby Fitzgibbon from BPAS about women having choice about what happens to their bodies. And this, of course, is also the theme of us broadcast live. But this um, news that came out last week or the week before about the government awarding £250,000 grant, which apparently is from the, the tax on women's sanitary products, um, to an organisation called Life, which is uh, obviously pro-life. Um, and I did hear the spokeswoman from Life on the radio saying categorically that they would not recommend a woman to have an abortion on, or, or support her to do that. It's just shocking. And I wanted to just say that I, Karen, on Sprogcast, am opposed to this. Yeah, me too. So I right. find, I, I, even, you know, we talk about pro-life, it suggests that the people that are pro-choice are are not pro-life, which yeah. is ridiculous itself. You it's know, that it's, usual um, polarising of views where yeah. they're not actually polarised. Yeah, words do that. You know, They create a definition and a category that we put our experiences in. It seems to me that this is the misuse of public funds. It feels like, as a woman, it feels like a kick in the teeth that you've got to pay tax on these things and then you, that tax is used to restrict our choices. Yeah. I mean, the very fact that there that there are tax on sanitary products is offensive. They should be free. <laughs> well, certainly tax free. <laughs> yeah. No, they should be free, Mark. Yeah. Okay, they should be free. Oh, that that campaign might not work, but that's you know, this is so important. You get condoms free on the NHS, can't you? Yeah, I think you can. Well, yeah. if, if men needed sanitary products, they would be free. You think? Yes. Okay. All right. 
Right. I get it. I won't. Well, we've had we have this discussion. I, I find it interesting all the time. But the influence of patriarchy cannot be escaped, mm. whichever way you turn. Uh, our culture, certainly in the West, is saturated with the patriarchy. Yeah, it's so hard to to pull it out and not notice it. So I noticed recently um, that I'm starting to get annoyed when being addressed as guys. Oh. When if there's more than one of us, even if we're all women, being addressed as guys annoys me. Yeah, no, I get that. I I, I get that. It's insidious. It 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 it's the water we swim in. So I I'm quite sure a whole lot of the influence of the patriarchy goes completely unnoticed and unacknowledged. Mm. And then when it gets acknowledged, uh, people say you're being ridiculous. Yes. Or you're yes. being you're politically correct. Or you're one of those rabid feminists, aren't you? Yeah, I feel like I'm a pedantic and, and rabid feminist and no. insisting that words should be accurate. I, I tell you why I think it's important, because words, when words begin to shape, uh, to change, a culture begins to shift. Mm. You know, the early stages of a culture transforming is in the language beginning to transform because people's experiences are held in place by the words they use. Mm. So it, it, political correctness is, for me, is very important. You, you know, to call it something politically correct is almost like demeaning uh, the the power that words have to shape our experience and thus transform our cultures. Really, it should be socially correct, shouldn't it? Yeah, but yeah, maybe. And what's wrong with being correct? Shall we listen to Alice while you have a cup of tea? I'm doing it. I've got a coffee on now. Right, so we're going to listen now to Alice Allen, author of Open My Eyes That I May See Marvellous Things, which is a novel. So I'm chatting now with Alice Allen, who is the author of her first book, Open My Eyes That I May See Marvellous Things, which has just been released by Pinter and Martin. Hi, Alice. Hello. Thank you for talking to us today. It's a pleasure. We really loved your book. Well, I'm going to say I really loved your book because I don't think Mark has read oh, it yet. That's, that's really lovely. It's really gratifying and um, it's so nice to have it out in the world and being read by people finally because it's such a long process from writing it through to publication. So it's, it's really lovely to get some feedback. Yes, um, it must be quite strange. I can't imagine having your first, you know, work from your heart go out there and be read by people yes and it's set in a very foreign country as well so it's very hard to know if it will resonate with people or if they if I've done the job of describing Addis Ababa um, well enough that people can can visualize it Um, so it's 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 great that the sort of um, human aspect of it is um, is resonating and is yeah um, making sense to people. I felt like Addis Ababa was a character, almost. Yeah, <laughs> I understand right. that it was not. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um, Addis is such a an interesting place in, in terms of um, being a lot of contradictions, really. I and mean, it's a really interesting geographical um, location surrounded by mountains. And uh, it's very, very high, so you get this physical sensation of the altitude um, and it's parts of it are incredibly ugly, like mind-blowingly ugly. Um, and other parts are you know, really beautiful, and it's this very lively and busy and noisy and smelly. And but with sort of 
moments of you know real tranquility and full of wildlife as well so it's it's just such a it's yeah I miss it like anything <laughs> so did you spend a lot of time there yeah, we lived in Addis Ababa for four years. So my husband's a diplomat and we were posted out to Addis Ababa when my daughters were five and two. And um, we we lived there for four years um, and we just returned in 2015. So it, it feels quite recent that we left um, and we have a lot of friends there. So it's... Uh, it's very, it's very vivid for me still as a, as a, as a place. Yeah, you're obviously very fond of the place. Yeah, and I, I wanted to write about it as a way of recording it really for whatever happened. Whether I didn't know if I was going to find a publisher at that point, but you know, just to, to make it live in the memory and um, for my children, so that they would be able to sort of appreciate um, the, the detail and the day-to-day stuff. And it's, it's not stuff you. You forget necessarily, um, but I think as a family, we, we rehearse those memories a lot because it's something that we shared as a family and it's sometimes hard to explain to other people. But um, I think it's more of a way that I could um, just try and, uh, you know, share and transfer that, that experience, which felt like very much of a time and a place. And uh, it's partly to do with the sort of grieving process of leaving as I started writing the book in the just before our, our final year in the country when we were starting to sort of unpick ourselves and and sort of step away from this just ongoing story. So, um, yeah. And did you actually work while you were there? Is this based partly on some experiences you've had? Yes, it is. Um, so I um, was working in the UK for Breastfeeding Network as a um, peer supporter and I knew we'd be posted to probably a developing country, and I wanted to, to be able to do something that was really useful. I, I used to be an actress, and I thought, what's the point of doing that? <laughs> you know, it's not going to help anybody much. So I retrained to be a lactation consultant, and I just qualified when we went out to, to Addis. And I was imagining that I would sort of start slowly and maybe learn a bit more Amharic, because I had very basic Amharic at that point and maybe set up a breastfeeding group. But after two weeks of being in the country, I met a um, visiting American pediatrician who was just uh, had just finished doing a sort of a stint, two-week stint at one of the big public hospitals. And he had heard about me through somebody and um, said, please, 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 come, come. Anything you can do around breastfeeding would be much appreciated. So I went to the hospital and I was... Yeah, completely overwhelmed. It was like nothing I'd experienced in the UK where I was working fast, fast hospital for very high risk um, women, the poorest women in the community giving birth there. And they have a neonatal intensive care unit, which is, is one of the most advanced in, in Ethiopia, although it doesn't have um, ventilators. So basically the survival rate of babies, it's only babies whose lungs are sort of really mature enough um, when they're born that survive. And they wanted some help working with the doctors and um, the mothers in the kangaroo care room um, to try and support breastfeeding. So I debated it for a while and I was very nervous about taking it on because I thought, well, you know, what on earth can I do here? I'm so glad that I did because it was one of the most um, intensely rewarding and stimulating and thought-provoking times of my life. 
so I ended up um, volunteering there for four years. That must have been hard as well. I'm guessing that not all the babies that you were caring for would have survived. Yeah, um, and to be honest, you know, I don't want to over-exaggerate what what I was doing because a lot of these babies are were very critical and um, a lot of them were separated from their mothers because the mothers would be giving birth in a different hospital and would be sick or have had a C-section. Some of the mothers died um, and the babies would be transferred to the NICU at this particular hospital. And it's very, very moving and upsetting to be dealing with babies who are, are sick and preterm and the, the unfairness of that in any situation, uh, you know, in a developed country, but to be born into that and to be born into poverty as well for these mothers when they've such, you know, such challenges facing them. But yeah, I found it very upsetting and, and very moving. I, I, what I found was most, gave me um, the most use <laughs> for being there was to, um, to end up working with the, the nurses and the doctors and to be training and teaching them. And I did, I did a, a certain amount of working with the, the mothers on a one-to-one basis, but obviously I had to do most of that through a translator. So what I ended up doing was working and training doctors at all sorts of hospitals all over Addis Ababa um, about the mechanics of breastfeeding and also specifically about skin-to-skin, uh, postnatal skin-to-skin and kangaroo care and about how to keep breastfeeding going when there has been medical intervention because that's one of the hardest things is the such high rates of breastfeeding in Ethiopia and it's still very culturally accepted despite the um, forays into that from the formula companies and sniffing a new market which was uh, uh, yeah again a, a very um, upsetting and uh, challenging um, experience but but to when things go wrong um, and when births are sort of highly medicalized like just like in this country sometimes it's um, breastfeeding that suffers so um, I did lots and lots of training with doctors from um, and midwives actually and ended up working on them um, the, the labour ward as well a little bit to try and support breastfeeding amongst that, that particular community. And the, the kangaroo care is a real um, sort of central point of your book. Yeah. So we've got a, a midwife, Mariam, and a, an abandoned baby in special care. Yeah. And her experimental almost approach of um, offering this baby kangaroo care and donated breast milk. Yeah. So I was very influenced by um, the work of Nils Bergman and I was very keen that the the hospital had had um, a small kangaroo care room which was fantastic and just just sort of one of the very hopeful kind of um, places in in what could be unremittingly you know sad and anxious a sad and anxious place you know but these these mothers with their very tiny babies who just had been given back some element of um, power in their bodies you know they they were quite often extremely disempowered in this hospital environment they'd given birth prematurely you know they didn't often have enough milk because there's no uh, hospital grade milk pumps um, in Addis Ababa you know so they were really struggling but to see them with these tiny babies against their chest was was such a hopeful thing and uh, 
in um, trying to extend that process backwards to the labor war to get make sure that skin to skin was happening in order to prevent babies being separated at birth. There's a big tradition in Ethiopia, a big fear of babies getting cold. It's, it's very high, so the, the air can be very cold. And um, what I discovered was by doing a lot of observation and just um, just watching, really, was that um, there was a, a pattern of babies being taken from their mums immediately at birth, being wrapped up and put in front of a little heater in a spare room. Oh. What happens then, of course, is the... The baby gets cold than if it was against its mother. The baby misses its mother. Its instincts kick in and it says, where's my mother? And it starts crying and it uses up energy. And then it gets cold because it's using up energy and it uses up blood glucose. So then it's at risk of hypoglycemia. So the whole chain, and in the meantime, it's losing that golden first hour when it's primed to want to breastfeed. So um, it was became really clear that um, you know, this wasn't a happy picture and that, that, you know, this would be something really simple in theory to to try to educate about. So that was what became my kind of focus over the next few years because uh, there's all sorts of things that you could do and, you know, some of them would require resources and kit and some of them I felt would be less challenging and more about just changing practices. Of course, that was extremely naive of me as well because changing practices and behaviour is actually one of the hardest things to do. But I think that little ripples began as a process of that. And I know that lots of those midwives are now practising um, postnatal skin to skin and it's being um, taught um, by a lot of the doctors who were students at that time. So, yeah, you know, slowly, slowly. Well, it's such a low-tech, no-cost, doable thing. It's such yeah, a no-brainer. it is. It is a no-brainer, but it, it goes against a lot of very instinctive practice. And it's really hard to, to, to persuade people that a baby could be warmer naked against its mother's skin than wrapped in a big, thick, fluffy blanket. It doesn't really make sense until you sort of see it and until you see what babies can do when they are left next to the breast and how, you know, they they find it and they root and they latch on and and so much of that then follows from that sort of biological program. So that that's challenging. I think what is also challenging as it is in, in this country is the is the fear that midwives and um, health professionals have about passing the power back to the mother in the hospital situation. And there's a lot of trust involved in that. And I think it speaks a lot about the the levels of confidence that that midwives and nurses have in their own position. You know, am I going to be blamed if the mother drops the baby or, you know, if this baby gets cold, am I going to be blamed? And that's that's much more challenging because then you're dealing with, you know, hospital policy and the whole the whole um, setup of the of the hospital and the levels of hierarchy and uh, and I think that that applies to in in Britain, um, I've been I've been to hospitals where that's been a very big concern yeah, for midwives. I think you're midwives. right. And confidence not just in their own position, and confidence in the mm. mother, you know, being able to take responsibility for her own baby. Confidence in in the actual biology of it all. Yeah, yeah. It. Um, I think that there's a lot of um, 
I mean, I was at the Lily Hill book launch last week and um, the Positive Birth book, and it's all about telling positive stories about birth. And um, I think that goes for breastfeeding as well. Yeah. I mean, a number of nightmare stories you hear, oh, I couldn't breastfeed because... And yes, of course, there are women who have lots of difficulty with breastfeeding, and so much of that is um, a result of what happens uh, around birth. Um, there's, a, there's a number of women for whom it's difficult, but the, the, the what happens around birth is profoundly affecting. And if it starts to go wrong in the first few days, then that that can have a real knock-on effect. And I think that what we need to do actually is to hear the stories of of the women for whom breastfeeding was a breeze and was enjoyable and was and to lose the sense of oh they're they're being smug they're they're showing off but actually to to hear that no it's it it, it can be a lovely lovely thing and um, astonishingly easy for some people and that that would be hard to hear if it wasn't easy for you but. I think it's thinking about the the new mothers for whom yeah. it's a prospect. You're right, though. It it seems easier to find positive birth stories than to find positive breastfeeding stories, and it's exactly because of that sense of either the the person, the the mother concerned, thinking, "Am I going to come across as smug?" or other people going, um, "You know, just just seeing it as a polarizing thing." Yeah, it's it it is so polarizing, and it's it's so sad because. It's such a <laughs> it's a biological process that that can be affected by you know what happens at birth and um, it's it's I think breastfeeding is also an incredibly social process and uh, it's uh, I don't know what the answer is but I I um, I think it would be great to hear some of the the more positive stories about about breastfeeding and just that enjoyment and the link between a mother and a baby. Yeah. When you write about the baby in your book, the the first experience of a of a cuddle, of being yeah. picked up for the first time and and just held close skin to skin, that is the most amazing piece of writing. I've read that out three Aww. different times <laughs> to people and make them listen to it <laughs> wherever I go. Oh, thank you. You really just captured the sensation of being being the baby. Oh, um, I spend a lot of time around babies. Um, I'm I'm kind of sad I don't get to to spend so much time with brand newborn babies anymore because they're incredible. I think having babies as my own also, um, and um, you know, spending time empathising with them. I, I think being part of that dyad in breastfeeding, you you have a a sort of a, an extra non-verbal sense of connectedness with 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 babies when you're breastfeeding. But I I also partly because I didn't have a language and and I was within a, a hospital setting where I was a little bit of a spare cog to to start with until I sort of found what what value I could add. I spent a lot of time just observing in the hospital and. I think I needed to process it for myself because I'd never worked with babies born at 28 weeks before. I'd never seen a baby born that that young. Just watching them and trying to understand, you know, try to imagine what their relationship with the big outside world was when they're really so unformed and and so incapable of of, of dealing with it alone, and 
And then seeing that transition for those babies who were held against their mother's chests and they were able to rest. You know, the babies in the incubator looked like to me, and yeah, this is my interpretation, and um, they looked like they were sort of in stasis, like they were kind of waiting, whereas the babies who were against their mother's chests were actually getting on with the process of, of growing and developing. And I, you know, in our culture, it's um, we use incubators, and it, I think a lot of hospitals are really starting to understand the benefits of skin to skin, and it, it's happening a lot, and it's wonderful when it can happen. There's still a lot of fear about, you know, can the baby cope with this skin to skin? There's some wonderful stuff happening in Sweden around doing a lot of the medical interventions with the baby actually in skin to skin. Um, And Nils Bergman's work is all about, you know, this is the baby's niche. This is where the baby is expecting to be, where nothing can really happen unless the baby is where it's meant to be in its biological, um, its biological home, really, which is against the mother. So as I think I mentioned the the, the uh, doing this observation. Um, uh, my my mum's a therapist, and I um, was talking to her about this and just, you know, some of my um, struggles to, to to deal with the whole experience of working with very very little babies. And um, she recommended a book by an amazing writer called Romana Negri, who had done a lot of observations and wrote a book. Um, get the title wrong now, but I think it's called The Baby in the Intensive Care Unit, um, where she had just done minute observations of babies in incubators who were separated and then united with their parents and and just trying to sort of fathom what their relationship with their immediate environment was, whether that was the cop or... Um, you know, a mitt on their hand or their own foot or whatever it was, but all the cannula in the back of their hand. Or whatever. And I found that very, um, very inspiring because it was so humanising. When I talk in the book about different kinds of sight that I think um, people often use when they're working with in very um, difficult, um, painful situations with babies who might not survive, and there's a there's a kind of a non-seeing that goes on where you're just, you know, managing and coping and, and being very practical. And then there's the kind of deeper seeing where you actually acknowledge the, you know, the, the suffering and the pain and the humanity of the tiny little baby. And that's almost impossible to do, I think, if you're a, a professional. You, you couldn't do that all the time because it would make the job impossible. But... Um, I suppose I've I've tried to do a little bit of both yeah. um, in the book. I love the way you, you used sort of synesthesia, so the baby was almost feeling sounds and <laughs> hearing smells, <laughs> just everything so confusing and confused. But yeah, there's this sort of um, the feeling of light and the, <laughs> the the smell of the sounds, and um, yeah, I tried to yeah. try to imagine what that would be like. Okay, um, so I wish you luck with what what you're doing next your masters and any further fiction you might produce (laughs) um it will be good (laughs) i'm sure (laughs) thank you for talking to us today it's been brilliant so thank you very much your book alice i'm gonna say it again it's open my eyes that i may see marvelous things and it's on pinter and martin and it will be available um 
by the time this comes out. So I hope everyone buys it and reads it because it's good. <laughs> Thanks, Alice. Bye. Thanks, Karen. Bye. My girlfriend is loving that book. Yeah, I enjoyed yeah. it a lot. I read it. It's not in a genre of novel that I would normally read. How diplomatic you are. Yeah, I mean, it's well written, isn't it? It's, it is, and it, it's um, it just uh, quite unusual in some of the stuff it explores and the way it presents. Um, particularly, the thing that really leapt out at me was the baby point of view. Well, funny you should say that. My girl, my fiance rather, is reading the book at the moment, and she pulled me aside before the interview and said, "Mention the chapter when the baby's responding to to Mariam." She found that really quite moving. I think that's the chapter that Alice is reading, and we'll be playing out with that later. And I, I too, found that really useful. I also, like you, I think, found the interactions of the the staff in the hospital quite interesting, and how that's kind of woven in. Yeah. I've had. I'm, I agree with you. To me, those were the interesting parts of it. Oh, my mum's bringing me a cup of tea. Oh, or coffee. Hello, Lovely. Hello, hello mum. Thank you very much. The, my favourite parts of the book were the the those interesting things that are, are very not every day when it comes to fiction. So you know, mm. I've read thousands and thousands and thousands of novels, and the things that leaped out for me here were that were what I found unusual, and mm. it was the baby's point of view. But when I yeah. did a bit of research and asked among colleagues. There's actually a lot of that out there, and it was really surprising. Um, people came up with loads of examples of um, fiction where the baby's point really? of view. Yeah, and I've got one here, which is um, Kate Atkinson's book, Behind the Scenes at the Museum, which, if you'll allow me to tell you about it. Go ahead. Um, this novel was given to me by a woman in Budapest who I was hanging out with a bit um, when I was there, and I didn't have anything to read, and she gave me this. And Kate Atkinson's written a few books that include a bit of baby's point of view. Um, and I'm just going to read you a tiny bit. Um, so this is from chapter two called Birth. And it's baby. I don't like this. I don't like this one little bit. Get me out of here, somebody quick. My frail little skeleton is being crushed like a thin-shelled walnut. My tender skin, as yet untouched by any earthly atmosphere, is being chafed raw by this sausage-making process. Surely this can't be natural. Any clouds of glory I might have been trailing have been smothered in this fetid, blood-stained place. Wow. Um, but there's also a novel that came out last year by Ian McEwan called Nutshell. Right. Now, Not you might like this one better. It definitely isn't a love story of any sort. I've got a paragraph from this as well, which is um, the birth again. Unmerciful progress, relentless ejection. The cord unreels behind me as I make my slow way forward. Forward and out, pitiless forces of nature intend to flatten me. I travel a section where I know a portion of my uncle has passed too often the other way. I'm not troubled. <laughs> what was in his day a vagina is now proudly a birth canal. My Panama, and I'm greater than he was, a stately ship of genes, dignified by unhurried progress, freighted with my cargo of ancient information. Well, that's cool. You like that, that one, do you? That, that was the Nutshell book. That was Nutshell by Ian McEwan. Yeah, I will and, check that out. Um, there's an interview with him on the Guardian Books podcast where he reads, I think, that same section. That's brilliant. I like that. I've got like... one more for you. This is from Go on. Mother's Milk by Edward St. Auburn. Um, and it starts with the birth narrated by the baby. He used to be close to her. Now he longed to be close to her. The first taste of longing was the saddest thing in the world. That is lovely. 
the, these are the a few of the things that I found and I just it's, it's the baby point of view stuff that I'm interested in I know that there's loads of fiction depicting women on their back screaming in an absence of placenta but yeah there's a lot there's a lot about uh, maternal uh, mortality in fiction as well yes which I guess is because a lot of fiction as well is historical and also needs that dramatic event yeah without a doubt Without a doubt. I mean, it, it, a lot of the fiction I looked at kind of does feed into that cultural melee of birth being risky. Um, but then, of course, I was talking to my fiance and in large parts of the world, birth is risky. Yes. Yes. And and also the, the historical context again. Yeah. And th- this this union between uh, the medical model and the, the midwifery social model as the dance has been going on as long as I've been a midwife and, for, you know, much longer. But but ha- bringing harmony to that through a kind of a joint way of seeing or higher values is, is something I, I want to see in my lifetime. Hmm. I really do. I, I'm not hopeful. So I've just uh, occurred to me a, a book where midwifery is shown very positively in fiction is The Red Tent by Anita Diamond. And if, yeah. if if any of our listeners haven't read that, I would be terribly surprised. I haven't. Well, Mark. Red Tent? You need to. The Red Tent. You won't oh. like it. It's a novel. It's for girls. Oh, oh, Karen. <laughs> <laughs> us guys might like it. Yeah, well, it, it's it's a biblical retelling, and it does explore um, kind of early midwifery in a yeah. completely different setting. So non-clinical, obviously. My midwifery friends, my independent midwifery friends, you know, a lot of them are concerned of concerned about midwifery losing its connection to the old paths. You know, to that that intuitive, artistic, spiritual element that midwifery has. Uh, the, uh, the whole experience of being a midwife that to me was mystical and that I did feel on the outside of because I experienced the world as a man. Mm. And uh, some of the changes that are proposed and some of the attacks upon um, midwifery, excuse me, my phone, at the moment are, are putting um, midwifery's connection with the old paths uh, in danger. Mm. And, and that's a concern we should be responding to. And if you're free on the 5th of May, get along to that London event. Oh, nice. Yes. Yeah. yeah. So you also put a link on our page um, for some books which um, were not about birth, but about parenting. So this was, yeah. what was the recommendation? Novels that expectant parents should read instead of parenting books. Yeah, not that we're discouraging people to read parenting books well you can read marks but <laughs> don't bother with any of the others read these nice oh, novels instead novels are lovely well martin from pinter and martin if you're listening in that was karen that said that <laughs> <laughs> Go on, you, you well they've just ventured into novels maybe some more are coming yeah, yeah true and you mentioned uh, that one of these books is is amongst the best books that you've ever read i'm gonna yes. rush buy it now frankly. everything i never told you by celeste ng what impacted you so much about that? Oh, it really gets inside the minds of a teenager. Um, and it's it's a real exploration of the impact of their parenting. Uh, well, for me, the thing that, 
that stood out for me was the parents not knowing their child and that's something that resonates with me because as my child go, grows older I become more and more aware that there's stuff in his head I know nothing about yeah stuff in his life that I know nothing about and not yeah. because he's particularly secretive but simply because he is a separate individual from me and yeah. as a parent of a baby it, I didn't get my head around that for a long time yeah. That, that he isn't me and he doesn't want the same things as me. It's exactly the same process mentally or psychologically that he goes through or that a baby goes through as they become separate from their parent, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. But yeah, no, it, this was a lovely, lovely book. Okay. There's a new book coming out called Manhood by Laura, is it Laura Dodsworth who did the breast book? Oh, yes, yes. I, and I've had a chance to pre-read it. Oh, and, I want to see that. Um, it's, you know, pictures of penises. And then the man telling his story, you know, about uh, not just about his penis, but about being a man. And uh, I, I was weeping reading the book because I, I heard myself in the words of the men. Yeah. Uh, very powerful. It's, it's what good art does, I think. You know, good art resonates with us in our felt experience and gives us the opportunity to see things and feel things in different ways. Yeah. And um, that book, Manhood, uh, when it comes out, I think will be read by men and women. No, it's a good effort uh, by Laura. She's a friend of mine. And I think the book is going to be well received and controversial because it will stimulate a response in people that engage with it. Well, I can remember having my copy of Bare Reality out on the table and um, people coming around for, for dinner and the guy being unable to answer a question because he'd been distracted by what he described as a book of tits. <laughs> Oh, God. So I can't wait to invite him round with the <laughs> manhood on the table. I think we might be nearing the end of our show for the day. I think so. I think in terms of recommendations, we have mentioned so many books that we're, we're yeah. done. No, we're done. So if you've got any suggestions, comments, feedback on what we've been talking about today, we'd love to hear from you. Get in touch via Facebook or Twitter. That's facebook.com slash Sprogcast and at Sprogcast on Twitter. And if you're listening on iTunes, why don't you leave us a review? We get some lovely comments on the Facebook page and we'd love some reviews on iTunes. We'd like to hear from you. Yeah. So thanks for listening today. Okay. And now the last thing you'll hear is Alice Allen reading from her book, Open My Eyes That I May See Marvellous Things. Um, catch you soon. The baby. She lies in an open crib, wrapped in a blanket. She knows neither blanket nor crib, only the feel of where they touch her body. She is raw, uncooked, exposed, burned by the elements. Her eyes are too big for her head. They protrude from her sunken face, milky. She sees shapes. Patterns of light and shade, tastes the shadow, feels the bright scent of a probing light, like a fiery finger in her sinus. The room is warm, but not as warm as the place she came from. The plush velvet flesh that enveloped her has been replaced by empty air. Any draught that touches her triggers tiny impulses that ricochet within her. Her body is covered in a skin so fine that heat passes through her and her nerves jangle to the slightest breeze. She has no fat. She's not ready 
She lives in the moment, caught unawares. Each sensation is everything, all-consuming. It's agony to be alive, and it never ends. She feels noise keenly, feeling with her whole body. It reverberates through her. Her little organs are the drums on which each voice vibrates. The squeak of a door on its hinges is played on her tendons and the unsheathed nerves that run through her body. The whispering of the midwives is no better. She feels it as a subtle itching, a grating through the veins of her neck, the insides of her elbows. She would like to brush it away, but all her movements are reflexive, unintended, sudden thrusts and jerks. Only the slow, pale wandering of her eyes gives her the sensation of being stationary in her body. What belongs to her and what is of the world? The world is only what she feels, and there is no pleasure in it. The cannula in her arm aches and stings. There is something scratchy on her head, though she cannot distinguish head from hand or heart or heel. She is not whole, differentiated. She does not rest. In the brief moments when she does not merely live between pain and more pain, she whirs with hormones that drive her to seek protection, comfort, warmth, breast. That's all she needs. Warmth she has, but without the confines of the womb, the arms, she is nebulous, uncontoured, loose, unformed. Reverberate, reverberate, closer, flex, protest, falling, falling forever. <laughs>